On this week's TribCast, we'll talk about the Trump effect in 2020, repeat sessions, and third quarter fundraising takeaways. But before we do, I want to thank our TribCast sponsors. Edge, the Texas Monthly Festival, featuring Leon Bridges, St. Vincent, Brandon Maxwell, Texas Monthly Live, and more, November 8th to 10th in Dallas. Learn more at edge.texasmonthly.com. And Raise Your Hand, Texas. The future of Texas is in our public schools. Text Raise My Hand to 40649 to stand up for educators and students. Hello, this is Evan Smith, lamely substituting for our regular host, Emily Ramshaw, here on Wednesday, October 2nd, with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. He's supposed to make some crack now about me not being good at this. That's how it is. I'm not going to talk about repeat sessions if that's what you're looking for. <laughs> no, no it compliments. It is such no, a no, good joke. No, I made myself laugh no, out loud when no I wrote fishing, that. No fishing, no fishing. And political reporters Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. And Alex Samuels. Hello. Like the conversation with the president of Ukraine, this podcast will be perfect. <laughs> I want you to do me a favor, though. Send in your questions in real time on Twitter and Facebook using the hashtag TribCast. So I thought, Ross, we'd start talking about uh, start by talking about uh, the president. Uh, you wrote a great column this week about how finally, yeah. this far, <laughs> finally, t- it took you 10 years, <laughs> Ross, right. how uh, this far out from the election, there's a lot we don't know about what the election will or will not be about, including, frankly, impeachment, which could yeah, disappear. We don't, we don't know the issue. We know the personality. But we know that the president right. is going to be at the center of nearly every meaningful conversation in the run-up to and on election day. Yeah, I, you know, I think the, you know, the conversation right now, if you were doing this a year from now, Obviously, we'd be going into early voting in two weeks talking about impeachment. Um, right. I don't know that impeachment's going to be the deal. A year ago, um, and, and it's marked because of TribFest, a year ago at TribFest, we were talking about Brent Kavanaugh, um, but right. we were talking about Donald Trump. I mean, it, talking now about talking Brent to, Kavanaugh is talking about Donald Trump. Right. Now we're not? talking about impeachment, but we're talking about Donald Trump. And I don't know right. that we'll be talking about impeachment in a year, but I'm pretty, I'm reasonably confident that Trump is going to be the centerpiece of the conversation doing whatever he's doing and that, you know, where I was going with the column was all the candidates from John Cornyn down to constables and justices of the peace are going to be answering questions about the president that you wouldn't be answering in a normal year. I think, you know, it may or may not be a nationalized election. Nancy Pelosi, I think, told you that it wouldn't be well, a nationalized. Well, I want to come back to that, what Speaker Pelosi said about that. I disagree with her about that. Said but, that right, it wasn't yeah. going to be nationalized. I, I think, you know, I think it's going to be personalized. I think we're talking about, you know, Guy in the White House. Now, Alex, back in 2010, and in 2010, you were in what year in school? Somewhere in middle school. Learning how to do cursive. <laughs> well, all the way back in Somewhere 2010. Well, well, you too, probably, right? We're in, in 2010. We're class in, of 2010 uh, high school. So yeah. you were just graduating from high school. Right. I feel great about this. Um, I'm glad I went down this path. Right. Um, but it, so in 2010, when President Obama was in his first midterm and the Tea Party was coming into full flower, the strategy of Republicans in Texas and elsewhere was no matter who you were, no matter where you were, no matter what you were running for or, what, or who you were running against, your opponent was President Obama. And is there not, Alex, at least an incentive for Democrats in this election to turn the tables on that and have Donald Trump be their opponent at all levels? 
Um, I could definitely see that being fair game for Democrats going into 2020. I mean, even with this impeachment stuff, we see uh, Lizzie Fletcher, Colin Allred, you know, usually pretty measured Democrats taking a stance and going with the rest of their party on that. So really it's might be a question of, you know, whether they align with Trump and whether if they don't. And yeah, you, you named two districts that are, uh, you know, for the Democrats, the ones they have to defend. Right. These are the two districts that Republican members of Congress held until the last election where Democratic challengers defeated them. Republicans think they can win those back. That's in Houston in Fletcher's case, in Dallas and Allred's case. These are mm-hmm. very blue areas of the state. It's going to be a challenge for the Republicans to win those back. But you could see where the peril might be of activating the Trump base in those communities right, by making this too much of a nationalized election. Well, I don't see Colin Allred or Lizzie Fletcher actively weaponizing Trump in their races because they didn't actively weaponize him in their races last time. They followed the advice of of national Democratic leaders. Like, you heard this from Nancy Pelosi over the weekend. They understood that Trump is imbued in everybody's lives so much so that they don't need to focus on him in their own races. They can talk about more bread and butter issues that may resonate in some of those battleground the districts. existing conditions or, you know. Kind right, of more, exactly. Right. And, you know, as Nancy Pelosi pointed out over the weekend, I think in your conversation, you know, people don't need Democratic candidates to necessarily help them on, you know, like form an opinion about Donald Trump. A lot of these voters, because he is so um, ubiquitous, already have their opinion. But of course, I think, Patrick, you know, I think that these kinds of elections can't help but be driven by what's at the top of the ticket. What was at the sure, top of the no ticket last a, time? He, there's no doubt. I'm not denying he's Beto, a huge factor the top of the in the race. This time is but in terms of something that the Democratic candidates are going to be actively campaigning on, I, I, I don't see it. Yeah. I think to some extent, Trump was at the top of the ticket in 2016, Existentially, too. if not actually. Uh, right, yeah. Rodney Anderson, the former um, House member who's now the Dallas County Republican Party chair, said in a panel at, at TribFest, was talking about this and said, you know, the Democrats need to concentrate on some of these issues or Republicans need to concentrate on some of these issues that uh, the Democrats have won with, like education and health care and whatnot. And I said, how's that going to go with Trump at the ticket? And he just said, it's going to be much harder. Um, it's going to be but, much harder. But he compared the 2016 election for the Republicans to the 2010 election for the Democrats. Tea Party in 2010 and Obama's second midterm, first midterm, and you mean 20, 20, 2018, 2018. Sorry, 2018. Trump's first midterm was 2010. <clears throat> yeah, but um, you know, but he's clearly worried about it, and I think his party's clearly worried about it, and they're worried about the guy in the White House and not about the issue. Uh, Alex, the way we um, <clears throat> we think about these elections is in terms of presidential year and non-presidential year turnout. Presidential year turnout is high, midterm turnout is low. So in 2012, almost 8 million people turned out for the Obama Romney race. It wasn't much of a race in Texas. Romney beat Obama by 16 points. <sighs> 2014 midterm election, no presidential election on the ballot. Turnout went down to 4.7 million from 8 million. 2016, Trump and Clinton on the ballot. Turnout went up to 9 million. We expected turnout last time to go down. In fact, turnout was 8.3 million in Texas. It was presidential level turnout. We have an actual presidential race coming up now. Will the president and the fact of the presidential election potentially spike turnout even farther next time? And will that, in fact, drive the outcome of the election? I think that's definitely something Democrats are hoping for. I was talking to Manny Garcia with the Texas Democratic Party earlier today, and he was just talking about how Democrats are really working to, you know, re-energize the suburban base that did help them flip the Allred and Fletcher seats in uh, right. 2018, and also turning out um, more younger voters, voters of color, um, and really working to get them to cast a ballot in 2020. So if there are those younger, um, maybe more people of color going on the ballot, like uh, – 
going to cast a ballot, I can see definitely a higher turnout. And th those right. were the ingredients, really, for the Democratic success last time were young right. people, people of color, and suburban women. Mm -hmm. right. right. And we, we've already heard estimates from Republican operatives and elected officials who are on the front lines in, in 2020 that they expect turnout to be somewhere between 10.5 and 11 million. I mean, if there's 10.5 or 11 million people turned out, I, I just have a hard time understanding how that's good for any party in power. Because as you, Ross Ramsey, said long ago, oh anger is a greater motivator than joy at election time. If you have that many right. more people turn out to vote, they're not happy people, they're pissed off people. What the Democrats are hoping, you know, sort of in a generalized way is that, you know, there's three positions here that you go from, I'm a Republican, I'm for Trump, and then I'm not really sure how I'm going to vote. And then I'm, you know, maybe over to another candidate. Right. If the Democrats can get the Republicans just to the I'm not sure stage, then, you know, they benefit from that. And if you get a big turnout in Texas, you know, my question on this is over time, if you have a, a smaller midterm turnout, that's a Republican turnout. That's a very red state. When you have a larger turnout, right. it's still a red state, but not as red. It's pink. Um, and in fact, 2018 was pink. All the Republicans won. They didn't win by the margins they were accustomed to. But when the numbers of people at the polls in Texas go up, the vote is less red. Generally and speaking, I wonder, it's bad for the And I wonder if red, you get up right, in the yeah. 10 and a half or 11 million um, voter right. range, if that's good for the Republicans. Yeah, Patrick, what you're referring to in the case of at least one Republican official, Steve Ministeri, who used to be the chair of the Republican Party, then went to Washington to work for the president, has now come back to lead this effort on the, par on the part of the Republican Party to try to drive up voter turnout as a hedge against what Ross is talking about. Well, if they're going to grow their numbers, we need to grow our numbers. The question is whether there's much between where they are now, generally speaking, in election time and the ceiling. It was the Democrats who really had much more upside since they had done such a bad job over time of turning out their voters in great numbers. Is there any evidence that there's a lot of Demo a Republican turnout, pardon me, still to happen that could conceivably offset what Ross is talking about? Among existing Republican voters, there may be limited uh, runway, but that's why they're focusing on voter registration right. this cycle in a way that they haven't in the past. Um, Ministeria is leading a, a big effort within the within the infrastructure of the state party. You have a separate uh, super PAC, Engage Texas, which has already raised close to $10 million. That's uh, aiming to register hundreds of thousands of new Republican voters. And so, yeah, there's an argument to be made that of the existing, you know, registered Republican voter pool in Texas, that there may not be enough people left in it's there all about to, the new to folks. keep pace with that. Yeah. And that's why I think you're seeing an emphasis on voter yeah. registration. You need to bring more people in. And it's a two-step. First, you register them, and then you ask them a couple of questions and figure out whether you're they're yours or the other guy's. And then you decide whether to drag them to the polls on election day. Yeah. Right, because we don't have party registration right. in Texas. Right. right. So, so you ask them a couple questions. How do you feel about health care? Yeah. How do you feel about, you know? Then you determine are you really one of ours or not. Right. Right. A Alex, you, like me, are obsessed with uh, candidate filings and, you know, oh, this person's running, oh, that person's running. The last place where there could be a Trump effect, maybe there are some more, uh, but the last place for this conversation is the degree to which people decide they do or do not want to run this time based on the political climate and the environment, which after all is driven by the guy at the top. So do you get a sense from whether it's state legislative filings or congressional filings that there is a Trump effect in terms of who is and who is not uh, dipping a toe in the water? Um, I think more so at the congressional level than at the statewide level, at least from what I've seen, Patrick can maybe talk more about specific filings. Yeah. Um, but I know in certain swing districts um, where the incumbent has resigned, Will Hurd, Kenny Marchant, 
you know, there's obviously some sense that they are resigning because they knew they would have a tough race ahead. Right. Um, whether or not that's the case, I can't really speak to that. Um, but I don't really know too much about whether uh, people are going to run for the state legislature, choosing not to run for the state legislature because they're afraid of Trump at the top of the ticket. Or they just think, generally speaking, that this is not a really great time to be hanging out there Mm -hmm. as a candidate because, as Ross said, you kind of own the whole package. Mm -hmm. Well, and if you're in a close district, you know, Dwayne Bohack won by something like 47 votes last time. votes, fewer than 50 votes. And decided not to run this time. You know, that's, you know, it's going to be a tough race even if he wins it. And if you barely won it in 2016 with that set up, it's going to be hard to win it in 2018. So let's let's transition over to the next topic, which is really an extension of this topic, Patrick, and that's kind of the state of play in the congressional races. To Alex's point, we had another retirement this week. Mac Thornberry, uh, Republican member of Congress, long serving, maybe the longest serving, right? Is he he's longest in the Texas delegation. longest in the Texas delegation, um, who announced that he would not come back for another term. Um, that makes six Republicans from Texas in the delegation who have decided not to come back, which is more than 25% of the Republicans in the Texas delegation now have said they would not come back. The question that everybody always asks is, can you draw a conclusion from the fact that six Republicans from Texas have said they're not going to come back? Where, where right. do you well, come yeah, down? Yeah, no, I mean, people like to group all these six retirements together as one big Texas, and that's that's fine, but they're definitely unique circumstances to some of these retirements. Right. So to, to, this is probably making it too simple after I just talk about things being unique, but you have basically you have three of these six members who were facing truly competitive races. In Will Hurd in San Antonio up to El Paso, Pete Olson in Fort Bend County, and Kenny Marchant. Houston, Kenny Marchant up in Carrollton. Yeah, right. they, these guys were facing. Um, very competitive races. They would have had to work hard for it. Not to say that they were, you know, these districts were, some of them were necessarily total toss-ups, but they would have had to work hard. And in in the case of Marchant and uh, somewhat Olson, he had a bit of a competitive race last time, but at least in the case of Marchant, it's the first time they would have had to work really hard for re-election in a long time. Right. Um, On on the general election side, they may have had primaries in the past. Will Hurd's always been a competitive seat, uh, was getting more and more competitive. Right, and he insisted to me on Thursday night last week at the Tribune Festival, oh, I would have won. I, it would have been a four-piece. Like, that's thinking, what yeah, I would have yeah. said, too. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so. yeah, exactly. Well, we'll never know, will yeah. we, actually? Ross, so, but, but, yeah, but, but, but to, to Patrick's point, Conaway in Midland. Right. 60-point district. Pete Flores in Waco. I want to come back to the About Flores race in second. District. And Thornberry right. today, a dead point. Republican would beat a live Democrat in that district, well, reliably. You know, there's a play forward on two of those. The Midland seat and the Amarillo seat are going to be defended in redistricting by freshman incumbents of one party probably of the Republican Party, but those seats are going to be hard to keep. Texas, they're in parts of Texas where the population, population is, is thinning. Dropping. Rural Texas. They're so, outside yeah. of the triangle of, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, San Antonio, Austin, where our, most of the population is. And it would have been much easier to defend your turf if you were a 25-year veteran than if you are a one-year veteran. Yeah, You were going to say on those three. Well, I was going to say an, another factor there is that at least in the case of Conaway and Thornberry, um, they were they were or are terming out of their committee leadership posts, mm-hmm. and that plays into I think their decisions as well. And I think both of them, yeah, both of them have actually Maybe said good time have said off. publicly that that had to do with their decision that they were uh, term limited out of leading their respective committees, being yeah. either the committee chairmanship when they're in the majority, the committee chairman when they're in the majority, or the ranking member yeah. when they're in the minority. Alex, you know, talking to Hurd on Thursday night and about the fact that among other things, he used to be until very recently the only swing district or flippable district member of Congress from Texas, right? 36 House districts. His was the only one that was a true 50-50 district. 
we're talking openly about the possibility of four, five, six. God, the Democrats would even add Chip Roy. I mean, they'd add a couple of other districts probably. Right. They want to go after Dan Crenshaw. Maybe we think we could pick up Roger Williams. It's like a three-carom bank shot on a dive bar pool table at two in the morning. But I think people are looking at McCall. McCall, yeah. Mike McCall, Austin stretching over to Houston. I mean, the idea that we're now talking about this many congressional seats in play is kind of amazing when you think about how recently Will Hurd was the only one, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I had a friend actually text me uh, up from D.C., I think, when uh, Thornberry announced his retirement. And he was just like, what does the GOP side of the Texas House delegation even look like right now? You know, right. who's left? Who's left? Um, and it's an interesting question. Louis I mean, Gohmert's who's left. <laughs> and on behalf of the entire press corps, thank you. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah but right. It, it is interesting to see um, that it could, we're at six right now, but it could easily go to seven. Right. I think some are saying maybe eight might be a stretch. So Mike um, McCall was on Congress <laughs> Avenue, you know, at, at the Texas Monthly Tent during the Tribune Festival talking to Jay Johnson, the Obama-era Homeland Security Secretary, about right. the state of Homeland Security. And there were people from Mike McCall's district I went over before the panel, and there were women, a couple of women who were talking about, like, screaming at McCall, right? And I thought to myself, if I'm Mike McCall, I'm thinking, I am too old for this shit. I do not need, <laughs> I do not need to do this. Now, I know that he has said he's running again, but that is one of those districts where if, if Mike McCall came out tomorrow and said that he was not going to run after all, it would not catch any of us by surprise, mm-hmm. right? We're, yeah. we're thinking that McCall could be— He's, he's the richest guy in Congress. And, you know, it's one of those things where you look at it and you say, this is, if you're the richest guy in Congress, this is really how you want to spend your time in a tent on Congress Avenue in 98 degrees and 98% humidity with people yelling at you. Being screamed at by people. Well, the other theory, Patrick, is that... um, (laughs) It's it's a great uh, plug for Tribune Fest 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Please come to the next Tribune Festival and you too can be screamed at by people in 98 degree weather. It's so hot. (laughs) You know, the theory here also is, is that part of the reason, if you don't say that the exit of all these Republican members of Congress is because of Trump, say. The other piece of this could be that they're looking at the prospects of the Republicans taking back the majority in 2020 and thinking, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. Right. We don't want to go back in the minority. Sure, absolutely. That definitely has to be a consideration for some of these members that even if they personally aren't facing a tough race in their district in 2020, they are calculating what the likelihood is of their party returning to the majority in 2020, and they're not liking the prospects right, right now. I want to come back and talk about Pete Sessions and third quarter fundraising in a second. But before we do that, I need to thank two more TribCast sponsors. Texas Bankers Association, representing about 500 banks across Texas. Learn why Texas banks are the heart of the community at texasbankers.com. And the Texas Association of Community Colleges, providing pathways for all Texans to advance to the next level. Accessible, affordable, and relevant. Visit TACC.org. Patrick, you and Abby Livingston, our Washington Bureau Chief, had a story last night. I had to read it three times. I kept going, I'm not really reading this. But... It is the case that Pete Sessions, the Democratic member of Congress, longtime Levin-Termer from Dallas, who lost to Colin Allred, Alex mentioned, in the last election cycle, is talking about moving to Waco to run for a different congressional seat that is being vacated by Bill Flores, who's retiring. That's actually happening, or we think that's happening. Right. And I think it's helpful to zoom out uh, and go back to the beginning of the 2018 cycle. Uh, Pete Sessions is former chairman of the NRCC. He, you know, when Democrats said they were targeting a seat at the beginning of the 2018 cycle, he was very uh, confident that they were being almost to the point of being targeting co- cocky, right? He yeah, said right. publicly, I don't want help from national Republican groups. I'm going to be fine. Leave me alone. Um, we get within a few months of the election 
And sure enough, he's in real trouble. Uh, millions of dollars are spent on his behalf. Uh, and he loses to Colin Allred, uh, a Democrat, by, a by couple, six by, or by, seven by significant. points. I mean, it, it wasn't, wasn't like a, it wasn't really, a close race. Right. right. It wasn't close. Um, so it isn't long after he loses that he starts toying with the possibility of running for that seat again, that, that his old Dallas-based seat. Every few, right. every couple months, he would say something new to the Dallas Morning News to kind of keep alive the possibility that he could run against Allred again. Um, in the meantime, though, especially this summer, you saw a Republican primary take shape for that seat with a few serious, at least a couple serious candidates, um, including one, Genevieve Collins, who's already been recognized as a, a young gun, as they call him, by the NRCC. Um, so that Republican primary started taking shape, and you had some Republicans locally who, given the, the loss last time, weren't particularly thrilled about Pete Sessions running again and, and mucking up that primary that was already proceeding on its own terms. And this was, and then, and then that gets us to yesterday evening, which is kind of a surprise, you know, people out of the uh, the 17th Congressional District in Waco, um, you know, started speculating and started talking about and tipping reporters off that Pete Sessions was actually looking at running for the 17th District, not for his old district in Which Dallas. Which would require him to run, uh, to move, pardon me, to run, right? He, he... Right. And this is the district that we mentioned earlier that where Bill Flores um, you know, said that he's not seeking re-election. The Republican primary there, given how recent Flores' announcement hasn't really uh, taken shape yet, and so it's a pretty, you know, open field for now. Um, but Flores has been having these informational sessions with prospective candidates. Um, you know, I think yesterday, or at least at these, in total, these sessions have drawn like a number of like 15 prospective candidates. Flores right. has been taking a really hands-on role in trying to at least help people understand what it takes to run for Congress, what it could take to fill this seat. And Flores started polling uh, district activists yesterday, uh, you know, said, I caught wind that Pete Sessions looking at the seat. What do you think? Um, and of course, that uh, that and a few other things started a tidal wave of media coverage right. last Who? night and, yeah, right. and media speculation. Right. And Flores actually came out after the initial reports and told uh, the Tribune's Abby Livingston that he's got he got feedback to that. To and that it's response. not positive. It's right? not positive. The people right. don't like the, the idea of Sessions coming down, running for that district. You know, Sessions does have some roots in the district. He was born there. He grew up there. Um, but still, uh, some folks not you know think that there should be more local candidates. The, the, whole, the money quote was Bill Flores saying, right. "I wish he'd called me first. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It doesn't sound like Flores so, is going to be team Pete Sessions. If well, he's I, I, you know, two things here. This is this tells you a Sessions' estimate of the winnability of his old district and tells you about the, well, the viability I, of candidates I against agree. Colin Allred. That's effectively That's an in-kind contribution to the Colin Allred right. campaign. The, the second Pete thing, Sessions says, I can't run in my own. I want to go back to Congress badly. I can't run in the district that right. I held 11 terms because... Colin Allred can't be beat, so I'm going to move to another district. And Dan Branch, another candidate, former uh, state rep, also passed on that Declined seat. Declined so, to run for that seat. So, And then the Bill Flores seat is an open Republican seat, and if you win the primary, Again, that's chances... Again, Republican chances, seat. Chances, well, it's not, you know, yeah, it's not a, a Conaway seat or a Thornberry seat, but it's a 15-point advantage last time for Flores. Um, right. And, you know, if you win the Republican primary, you probably win. So, yeah. And just to clarify, too, he doesn't... Under law, he doesn't have to move. Well, in fact, there are members of Congress currently who do not live <laughs> right. in their districts. Yeah. But it would be one that, thing if somebody is living a block from their district. Sure, There's sure, another thing sure. if Pete Sessions but is he, living he report, in Dallas. He nonetheless right. reportedly has plans to has move. Has plans to move, but he does. <laughs> so, um, Alex, we're get at an that moment. In Waco. <laughs> yeah, right. An apartment, yeah. Right. <laughs> one of those Baylor graduate student housing right. apartment complexes. Efficiency, right, yeah. 500, yeah. Um, Alex, uh, we're at the end of the third quarter, now at the beginning of the fourth quarter, and this is a moment to this conversation about all this activity on the congressional side when we're beginning to hear from candidates about their fundraising. I want to ask you about Gina Ortiz-Jones, the Democratic candidate presumptive. I mean, she may or may not have an opponent in her primary, but 
everybody expects that Gina Ortiz Jones will be the nominee of the Democrats. In Congress District 23, the district that Will Hurd is leaving, mm-hmm. he, she was his opponent last time. Mm-hmm. She came within 1,000 votes of Will Hurd last time. She announced again. She raised more than a million dollars in the third quarter, which is a lot of money. It's a lot, and I think uh, we reported that she had like 1.4 million cash right. on hand, or that's what her campaign was I mean, Money isn't everything in politics, but all things considered, it's pretty important. Think of the media right? markets that aren't in that district. It's pretty cheap. To advertise down there. And a million, a million dollars, dollars goes, goes a long, a long way, way in Uvalde. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, a right? lot, lot further than it would go in, say, Dallas. Alex, what do we take away from that? She's a juggernaut, isn't she, sort of, in this next election? I'd say so. I mean, there are a couple of other Democrats in that race, but she's definitely emerged as the front runner, not only in terms of fundraising, but also endorsements. I think Emily's List has backed her, um, a couple different other groups. And Name but, ID, right? And Name ID, yeah. Um, she did come really close to in 2018, um, so I think... Most people are expecting her to at least win the Democratic nomination in that seat. Yeah. Um, as we learned in the primary there last cycle, you can't take any chances. So I'm sure that she is still uh, still keeping an eye on the primary. Um, you know, we saw last time, uh, you know, there were some unexpected results in that primary uh, with uh, candidates with Hispanic surnames. Like, that's a district where you sometimes see some wonky results in the primary, especially if everyone's kind of spending the same amount of money and no right. one's rising right. above the, the pack. But again, she's going to have the money to spend. Yeah. So she is the favorite in the primary. I imagine her team is still kind of being vigilant of the primary because a Democratic primary elector in that district can be a little unpredictable. Well, you always run like you're losing. I think the most interesting thing about that district is here you've had an African-American conservative who's held that district for three terms. It's a 71% Latino district. Mm -hmm. And it has been, over time, open to the idea of Democrats. Hillary Clinton won that district, for instance, again, Donald Trump in 2016. Um, I wonder whether with Will Hurd out, if a Republican other than Will Hurd can hold that district. And I asked Will Hurd that specifically the other night, and he said, oh, there's a, you know, we'll have a good candidate. You've got to be from San Antonio. Uh, got to be from San Antonio. That's where the you know the biggest number of votes are, and you've got to be well known. You've got to be you know a, a solid candidate, um, and you know there's some names out there. We'll see if any there's of them a turns out to be a solid. named Tony Gonzalez. Yeah, well, right, he was, was shouted a Republican out, not candidate. necessarily endorsed, but shouted out by both Heard and then Tom Emmer, the chairman of the National Republican over Congressional over this Committee. last weekend. Yeah, mm-hmm. over the weekend too. Um, but he's you know he's starting from scratch. He raised uh, I think a hundred thousand dollars. Um, in his in first stretch of his campaign, I'm, I'm blanking on his the exact first month, time, yeah. first month of his campaign, which was healthy. But again, when you put it's that not up Gene against Ortiz, someone like Jones, 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 right. he's got a long way to go. And just as Heard and Emmer shouted out Gonzalez, Nancy Pelosi, when asked about the opportunities that the Democrats had to pick up seats in Texas, first thing she said is, we're going to elect Jeannie Ortiz Jones. Yeah. So the race is on everybody's They're zone. almost already counting that one. On everybody's yeah. radar screen. All right, uh, let's stop there and say thank you to you guys for your participation. That's all the time we have. I want to thank Texas Monthly, Raise Your Hand Texas, the Texas Bankers Association, Texas Association of Community Colleges, our sponsors this week, and an extra special thanks to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Ross, Alex, Patrick, Michael Ray, and Bobby, our producers, this is Evan Smith. Thank you so much for listening, and hopefully for your sake and mine especially, Emily Ramshaw will be back next week. Do I have to talk you a little